Well, let's turn to God's Word together now. Our main text for this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 1 to 11. We're at a major transition in the book of Isaiah uh, this morning, as I think you'll see even as we read the text. We're going from a large section that was primarily on the judgment and power of God to a section now that's mainly on the redemption that God offers us. To bring out some of the themes that are in Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to read from Matthew 11 as well. I hope you can see the similarities between Isaiah 40 and those verses from Matthew 11. And then we'll also read from John 10, which is another text that echoes Isaiah 40. And then lastly, from Revelation 22, which again quotes these verses that we'll be looking at in Isaiah 40. So Nicholas will come and read for us from Isaiah 40, and then Kathy from Matthew 11, Audrey from John 10, and Ryan will read for us from Revelation 22. Let me pray now briefly for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we know that your Word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, God, we pray that your Word would do that in our midst right now. Lord, as your Word is read and as I preach your Word, would you, by your Spirit, do work upon our hearts and in our souls to make us more like our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ? And God, would we see you clearly by the revelation of your word? We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 41 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of God shall be revealed, and a flesh, flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Matthew 28, I'm sorry, 11:28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
John 10, 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns his, the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Revelation chapter 22 verses 12 through 17. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The passage before us this morning is in many ways a sermon in itself, just in its reading. It urges upon us over and over the necessity and the significance of reading and proclaiming God's word. If you ever wondered why we as a church say place such a high value on preaching, why we give it so much time in our weekly worship as opposed to anything else, you need not look any further than this passage that's before us this morning. You can see in verse 1 that God is speaking to us the first words, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And then right after that, there's this exhortation to us to speak. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. That word cry means to to call out in a loud voice to summon people. And that word is used again and again in this text down in verse 3. It says, a voice cries. And then in verse 6, it says again, a voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? There's this emphasis again and again on speaking, on God speaking, on us speaking. And then maybe most profound of all, if you jump down to verse 9, it says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Why go up to a high mountain? It says to lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. So there's this emphasis all through that we are to be proclaimers of God's word because God's word has come to us. God is excited about what he has to say in this text here this morning. There is a special emphasis in this text on the fact that God is speaking to us, that he is proclaiming these words to us, and that these words that we receive in this text are also to be proclaimed to others. God seems to be saying here in these first 11 verses of chapter 40 that this is something I really want you to hear. And I don't only want you to hear it, I want all of creation to hear it. I want you to go up on top of mountains and cry out what these verses this morning have to say. 
God himself is placing a special emphasis on the message of these verses. And so my prayer is that we would all have ears to hear what God has to say to us in this passage. Now this is, of course, not to diminish or to say that any other part of Scripture is less important than this passage is before us this morning, but what God seems to be saying is that especially the words this morning reflect my heart. They most reflect what I really want you to know. So whereas other texts, other passages may be leading to the point in some way that we can see who God is when we look at it rightly, I think that God is saying in this text, I am stating very clearly what my heart is toward you, what my purposes are, and so pay close attention. That these words are to be remembered, these words are to be heralded, to be cried out, to be proclaimed. And so what is it that God especially wants us to hear in this passage? Well, I think we see the essence of it in verse 2 when it says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And there's three things in particular that God wants us to understand. That her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, if you could characterize the message of Isaiah in any way up to this point, you would probably call it a message of warfare, a message of indictment for iniquity, And the message of punishment for sins. In other words, when we come to Isaiah 40 verse 2, Isaiah himself is signaling that the message is changing. That God is moving on. Whereas before the message was one of warfare, was a message of see your sins and your iniquity, hear of the punishment that God is bringing He's saying, now I have a new message that I really want you to hear. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. And you have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. Now I do think, lest there be any concern in you as there was concern in me, especially in that last phrase of verse 2, received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. I think that what this text is saying is that you have received the full measure of punishment that your sins deserved. God is not saying that I punished you two times over, that I gave you more than a just punishment. God is simply saying that you have received the full measure of punishment. And what does it mean that the full measure of punishment has been received? It means that now the warfare is over, that the iniquity is gone, that there is nothing more to fear. You see, beloved God, because he is a just God, he weighs out a just penalty for our sins so that when that penalty is paid, there is no more penalty for sin. Precisely because the penalty was just and it was weighed out just right. And so that means that when a penalty has been paid, we truly do not need to fear the Lord. And beloved, the glorious news that we have on this side of the New Testament, on this side of the cross, is that our sins have been fully paid for. 
The penalty was paid in full upon the cross of Jesus Christ. So that means that when we come to God now, there is no penalty left. In fact, it would be unjust of God to punish us again after already punishing our sins upon the cross. And so this means that our warfare is ended. We do not fear the violence of God anymore. It means that our iniquity is pardoned. That God has forgotten our sins. He thinks of them no more. And that the punishment has been received already from the Lord's hand. There is no more punishment that we have to dread, beloved. This is the glorious message that Isaiah brings to us in chapter 40. This is the essence of the message that Isaiah once shouted from the hilltops all over creation, is that warfare is over, iniquity is pardoned, and the punishment has already been paid. And so, beloved, we can come into the Lord's presence with joy. And yet, we must acknowledge that there is a tension in this text from what we read here and what came before. Again, we had 39 chapters up to this point talking about God's warfare, talking about our iniquity, and talking about the punishment for our sins. And so oftentimes it can be difficult for us as fallen human beings to keep these things together in our minds, to keep these things together, that the Lord does punish sin, that he is wrathful against all who oppose him, and yet that he is also full of mercy, and that he is ready to welcome all who repent. And so this morning, I want to dwell for just a little while on this vast transition that Isaiah makes in the span of a few short verses. How is it that the God of Isaiah 40, 1 to 11, can also be the God of Isaiah 1 to 39? That is the question that I have for us this morning. Now, if we were to think of the God that we have heard of in 1 to 39... Probably the first word that does come to my mind when I think of that God is severe. He is a severe God. He does not overlook any wrongdoing and he does punish sins in full. We saw in Isaiah 1 through 39 that God is incredibly strong and incredibly powerful. His message is that I am God and there is no other His messages do not trust in anyone else, do not look to anyone else. Only I can deliver you. Only I can save you. Everyone else is under my wrath and is under my judgment. It was a call to trust in the Lord because of his power and because of his might and because he leaves no sin unpunished. He is a God who is as strong as could possibly be, and he is not shy about judgment, and he demands that he be trusted, that he be revered, that he be honored. Now, the danger in our human thinking is so often that we take certain qualities of God, and then we want to blow those qualities up. We want to make them even bigger than what Scripture has to say, and then we tend to block out other qualities of God. It's almost as if we think of a human being who might have some of those qualities, and then we kind of apply that picture of what a human is like back to who God himself is. And so when we think of a human being who is very strong, 
who is not shy about judgment, who demands that he be honored or revered, we usually think of human beings that we do not like very much. Human beings that are very arrogant and proud and possessive. The human beings that come to my mind when I think of a human being that demands respect and is judgmental toward others, people like an abusive husband or some football player jock boyfriend who only cares about having a girlfriend that makes him look good, or a weightlifter or bodybuilder that always wants everybody to look at him and see how great he is, who's always bragging about how much he can lift and how good he looks. These are the human beings that I think of when I think of someone who's just powerful and demanding respect. And so many times people know that the God of the Bible is very strong and he does demand respect. And then they think of these other human beings that they don't like and they think, well, if that's what God is like, well, then I don't, I don't want that God. I don't want to have anything to do with him. And yet to think of God in that way is to think of God in precisely the opposite way that we are supposed to think of God. It is projecting sinful man onto a perfect God. And what we are called to do over and over again in Scripture is to listen to God's Word and let God reveal Himself. Not to come up in our own heads what we think God must be like and then therefore somehow project that onto God. No, we let God's Word speak to us and we listen. And we never shape a God in our own image that looks like a man. We assume that God must be unique and one of a kind precisely because he is God. And so we can see that it is blasphemous to compare God to an abusive husband or to a jock boyfriend or to any of these things because it is thinking about God as a human being. It is to think about God from exactly the wrong way around. And yet, beloved, so often, even though we know this is the wrong way to think about God, even though we know that God is God and not man, so often our minds operate in just that way. Let me give you just one example that probably everyone here has thought about God in this way at some point. Let's say that you know that you've sinned in some way. You've, you've trusted in Christ, and so you know you're covered by the mercy of Christ, and yet you come to a point where you sin in some known way. You walk into it. Now, I don't know what that sin might be for you. Maybe you realize your heart is angry when you shouldn't be angry. Maybe you got drunk when you know you shouldn't get drunk. Maybe you looked at pornography when you know pornography is evil or you opted for laziness and self-gratification when you should have been serving others. And then sometime after this sin, you came to a point where you realized the wrong that you had done. Now, how do you picture God at that moment? How do you picture God when you realize that you have sinned, you have done something wrong? And now you know that you need God's forgiveness. Do you picture God looking at you with disappointment in his eyes, shaking his head, wondering when and if you will ever learn your lesson, waiting for you to get cleaned up before you come to him, saying, hey, come and see me after you have this problem all worked out? Is that how you picture God in that moment? Beloved, if you've pictured God in that way, then you have indeed projected an image of man onto God. You have thought of God as that abusive husband or jock boyfriend or meathead. 
Someone who has his act together and is just waiting for everybody else to get their act together. But beloved, is that who God is? When we picture God in this way, frowning on sinners, unable to believe just how weak we are, waiting for us to get our act together, we are blaspheming God. We are treating him as someone who is like us. And yet we so often picture God in just this way. And again, the reason we picture God this way is not because this is the God that's revealed in the Bible. It's not because we have turned to Scripture to see what Scripture has to say to us and to our hearts about who God is. It's because we ourselves have created a God of our own imagination. We've read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, seeing that God is prone to judgment, that he is very powerful, that he does demand reverence. And we've simply stopped reading there. We haven't seen all that Scripture has to say to us about who God is. And yet, even though it is very true, again, that God is powerful, that he is unafraid of judgment, and that he does demand reverence, that does not mean that God is therefore harsh and ugly and waiting for us to get our act together. The one does not follow from the other. And so we must turn to Scripture itself again and say, what is God like? Who is God? Beloved, God is indeed unique and different from every other human being. You see, for humans, so often some strength that we have then does lead to some weakness. Again, for a human being, let's say we know somebody who is very morally upright and very disciplined in their life. That's a very good quality for a human being to have. And yet so often we know that when a human being has that quality, there's kind of a shadow to that quality as well. Then they can also be very quick-tempered. They can be demeaning towards others, wondering why others are not as disciplined as them. Why are they not as morally upright in him? But again, God can be perfectly upright and there need be no shadow. There need be no downside to that glorious moral perfection of God. He can be perfectly loving, even as he is perfectly upright. And that is what we see in this chapter here. We see the diverse perfections of God. That not only is God righteous in all his ways and powerful and full of wrath, but we also see that he is gracious and loving and patient. And so when we come to Isaiah 40, we see that Isaiah has this message for those whose sins are pardoned. Those who have received from the Lord's hand the punishment for their sins. And again, beloved, in Jesus Christ, our sins have been pardoned. And we have received from the Lord's hand punishment for our sins. And therefore, let's see what these verses have to say to us about this perfect and glorious character of God. Now, I'm going to take this one stanza at a time because I believe that each stanza in these verses has something unique to tell us about the character of God. And so the first stanza is in verses 3 to 5. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, 
and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So first, notice the purpose of all of these rough places becoming level. The purpose is stated in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The purpose is for God to reveal his own glory and majesty. For God to be known. This is what God earnestly desires, beloved. He desires for us to know him. And so what is God going to do in order to be known? In order to reveal himself? He is going to flatten every mountain. All the uneven ground will become level. All of the rough places will become plain. This is what the Lord is doing in the pursuit of revealing himself to us. All through Isaiah 1 to 39, we have seen that the mountains and the valleys all have their role to play in God's judgment. It's as if God is saying in Isaiah 1 to 39 that I will let the mountains remain in place to slow the path of my judgment, to hinder the work of my wrath. And yet now, when it comes for the time for God to reveal himself, to make himself known, he says, no, now all the mountains will be made level. They will all be put down so that my glory can be revealed. And so what we see in this very first stanza is that God desires so much that we would see his glory, that we would know him, that he is willing to utterly level the earth, that we would be able to see his glory. And if there's any mistake about what this refers to, I hope verse 3 just rings a bell in your ears right away, that it says a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Beloved, where have we seen the glory of the Lord most clearly revealed? Is it not in the person of Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth? John came as that voice in the wilderness, crying out, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And so when Christ came, this is God saying, my glory is now revealed and all flesh can see it. God, even now, is in the process of removing every obstacle, every mountain, every rough patch, all uneven ground. He wants to level them all so that all can come to know Jesus Christ, so that all can see his glory. And so what we see in verses 3 to 5 is God's earnest desire to be known. Again, even though mountains and hills remain In the time of judgment, all of those obstacles are removed when it comes to the proclamation of God's mercy. God is abolishing everything that could slow the advance of his good news so that all can see just how good he is. And then we come to the next stanza, verses 6 to 8. It says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Now, at first, when I encountered this stanza in this passage, it was very confusing to me. It didn't seem to to fit this kind of rejoicing over God's word. How does this fit in the message of Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11? Well, I think there's a couple different purposes that God is accomplishing in these verses. The first purpose that he is accomplishing is he is saying that his purpose, that is his word, endures forever, even in spite of human iniquity and sinfulness. So when it says that that all flesh is like grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, it is saying that that is what human iniquity is like in God's eyes. That it is done. And yet, God's purpose, God's word, still stands. His word stands forever. Again, when we look at Isaiah 1 to 39 and we see so much iniquity in God's people and we see so much judgment poured out not only on Judah but on all the nations of the earth, it would be easy for people to wonder, has God's purpose changed? Has he decided to no longer be gracious and merciful? Has his word that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, has that word failed? Is he done with those promises now? And so part of what Isaiah is saying here is saying, no, those purposes are not done. God's saving purposes will stand forever. The word that he gave, the promise that he gave, will stand forever. Despite whatever little human beings may do, God's purpose remains. And so this is good news to us sinners, beloved. No matter what sort of sin we may commit, no matter how much we worry we may have offended God, we always know that God's word of mercy spoken through Jesus Christ will not change. We can always turn to him. We may wither, the flower may fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So that's the first purpose of this stanza, but the second purpose is also very beautiful, and that is simply to say that God knows our frame. He knows how weak we are, and he knows how powerful he is. He says that the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You see, God knows that we are weak. He knows how easy it is for him to wipe us out. And so this tells us that God knows how to treat us according to our nature. He knows how to be gentle with us. The words of Psalm 103, 13 to 17, very much echo the words that we read in this stanza. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Beloved, do you ever feel like a blade of grass? Do you ever feel so easily pushed over by any sort of wind? So easily green one day and then brown the next day? 
Beloved, if you feel like a blade of grass, then God knows how to care for the grass of the field. He knows that his breath can so easily scorch you, and so he knows to be careful with you. And he will tend to you in due time and in just the right way. God knows that his word stands forever and that we are as grass. And therefore, you need not fear the retribution or the harshness of the Lord. And again, we know that his purpose of redemption will stand forever. And so this now brings us to the last stanza, verses 9 to 11. It says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So first, see again that very last note of verse 9, Behold your God. It echoes the words of verse 5 when it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Again, God is saying, I want you to see me. I want you to know me. Say to the cities of Judah, again, go up on this high mountain, tell everyone, and what do we tell them? Behold your God. God wants to be known. And then verses 10 and 11, I think, present us this juxtaposition of God's character in the most stark way. So in verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. That verse 10, in essence, I think, summarizes how God came in Isaiah chapters 1 to 39. He came with might. His arm was ruling for him. His reward was with him and his recompense was before him. To all who did good for their reward and to all who did evil for their judgment, God came with might. And yet, look at the very next verse. Again, lest we blow this out of proportion or think of God wrongly, look at verse 11. It says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see, beloved, there is no contradiction in Isaiah between a God of might and wrath and judgment and power and holiness and a God who is a shepherd who will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom. Again, the primary difference is what we read in verse 2, that our iniquity has been pardoned and that we have already received punishment from the Lord's hand. And because this is the case, we know that God is like a gentle shepherd toward us. Beloved, we are like sheep. We are not smart. We are not attractive. We are easily led astray. And yet God knows this about us, and that is why he longs to be our shepherd to guide us and to lead us. 
I think these words of Calvin just carry this idea beautifully. When he's commenting on the words, he will carry them in his bosom. He says, These words describe God's wonderful condescension. For not only is he activated by a general feeling of regard to his whole flock, in proportion to the weakness of any one sheep, he shows his carefulness in watching, his gentleness in handling, and his patience in leading it. Here he leaves out nothing that belongs to the office of a good shepherd, for the shepherd ought to observe every sheep so as to treat it according to its capacity. And especially they ought to be supported if they are exceedingly weak. In a word, God will be mild, kind, gentle, and compassionate, so that he will not drive the weak harder than they are able to bear. Beloved, do you feel like a weak sheep this morning? Do you know how how you vacillate so easily between God and the world? Do you know how easily you are led astray, how prone you are to sin? Beloved, if you know your weakness in this way, this is an invitation to turn to Jesus Christ as the Good Shepherd, as the one who knows your frame, who knows that you are weak, and who is able to gather you up in his arms and to carry you close to his chest. Beloved, we never have any reason for turning away from God so long as we are willing to confess our weakness and our proneness to sin. God can no longer be angry with us if he has poured out his judgment on his son, Jesus Christ. As soon as God has done that, he becomes the good and gentle shepherd to us. And so when we turn to God, we know that he will indeed strengthen us and feed us and guide us. All we need, beloved, is the humility to acknowledge our wrong and to turn to him in our hour of need. Beloved, the day is coming when Jesus will return. That verse 10, when it says his reward is with him and his recompense before him, that's what we read in Revelation 22. When Jesus comes again, his reward will be with him and his recompense will be before him. He will give to everyone according to their works. And that means that now, today, is the day of salvation. Today is the day of welcome with open arms for anyone who would turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. For anyone who would acknowledge their nature like grass of the field or like a weak lamb. To anyone who will acknowledge that, he will be the good shepherd. And he will care for you and he will turn to you. And he will take you up in his arms and he will lead you. And so, beloved, would you receive this invitation of Isaiah 40 this morning? There is wrath and there is indeed fear of God for all who would turn away from him, to all who would not do his will, but for all who would turn toward him, who would receive these words of salvation. There is only mercy and welcome and grace. So, beloved, turn to the Lord this morning and know the kindness and the gentleness of God. Let me open us in prayer now, and then I invite you to also pray any words of confession or words of intercession for others. Heavenly Father, we indeed 
praise you for the fact that even though you do have all power and all righteousness and all judgment in your hands, that you also have all mercy and all gentleness and all favor in your hands as well. So Lord, I pray that anyone who is here right now, Lord, anyone who is here this morning who has not yet turned to you to receive that favor and gentleness and who is still under your wrath, I pray that you would turn their hearts right now in repentance and faith so that they could receive you as the good shepherd for their souls. So that they could know your mercy and your favor. And God, even as that is my heart's deepest cry for the salvation of sinners. Lord, we have many other needs, being a weak people, being these weak sheep that were just spoken of. And so, Lord, would you receive now our prayers of confession and petition to you?